Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is Christine Feldman Barrett, who joins me to discuss her book, A Women's History of the Beatles. It goes without saying that Beatle literature isn't exactly full of female perspectives and incredibly sad state of affairs in my view, so I was really keen to get Christine on when I saw her book was coming out. It's more or less the first book to offer a detailed presentation of the band's social and cultural impact as understood through the experiences and the lives of women. Christine captured in her book the energy that was exchanged between the Beatles and their female fans, and it looks far beyond the screams of Beatlemania. Christine Feldman Barrett, hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? Oh, good. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me on Beatles Books. (laughs) My pleasure, my pleasure. Well, uh, we're here to talk about your book concerning the Beatles and women, this is obviously a subject which it goes without saying, somewhat sadly, uh, it isn't particularly well covered in, in Beatles literature. Was there a, a moment or a, a kind of a set of moments um, that you experienced that, that impelled you uh, to start to write this book? Yeah, I would say there were a series of events or a sequence of experiences over several years that led up to actually researching and writing the book. So the first was in 2002, that summer, I spent in Berlin with relatives, and I ended up uh, having this unpaid internship at the first ever Beatles festival in Germany. And I was speaking German and English with the people there. There were a bunch of people from Liverpool, from Hamburg. And around the same time, I happened across uh, or happened upon a TV show where they were basically going through the history of rock in Germany and a couple of women were being interviewed and all of a sudden they're telling the story about forming an all-girl band in Liverpool but then eventually coming to Hamburg and having this whole career based out of Hamburg and touring throughout Europe, going to Japan, and they were called the Liverbirds. And I couldn't believe I'd never heard of them before. I had played in all-girl bands. I'd always loved 60s music, especially the Beatles, but other, you know, other bands, especially from Britain, and singers, everything. We, we'd watch all the movies from that time period, and I just couldn't believe that I had never heard of this group. So that was probably the first moment where I thought, hmm, somebody should be writing about bands like this. Are there more? Mm. And uh, I was really interested in in finding out if there were other, you know, all female bands that had started because of the Beatles. The next moment was spending a year living in Hamburg and Although I was working on my PhD at the time, which was not about the Beatles, but it was about mod culture from the 60s to the present and how it spread from the UK to uh, a couple or at least three other countries around the world that I was studying. So mod in Germany, mod in the US and mod in Japan. And I spent a year living in Hamburg. I was at the University of Hamburg through a Fulbright Fellowship 
And during that time, I did meet and interview some people from the Beatles story, like Klaus Fuhrmann. I, I didn't interview Astrid Kirscher, but I, I did meet her again that year. Mm. Um, and so the Beatles were very much on my mind that year in Hamburg. But then in earnest, really, things got going around the end of 2013, where I sat down and drafted out an idea of how I would approach a book about the Beatles, what would the focus be? Because I knew I really wanted to write something about the Beatles. The draft, I looked at it again recently, and it is pretty much what this book turned out to be, focusing on women in the Beatles story in all different sorts of ways. Then in 2016, I had research leave uh, from teaching, and I was able to uh, travel to London and Liverpool to start initial research on this book. So it really did occur to me that there wasn't a cultural history of the Beatles out there that told the, the story from the perspective of women, whether they were young women who formed bands because of the Beatles, because they were so inspired by them, or the fans. I felt like there was a really narrow view of who the female fans were of the Beatles, uh, that it was really just looking at the first generation of fans and that there were actually more subsequent generations of fans out there. Uh, And then again, you know, the stereotype was of the screaming Beatlemaniac. And I just wanted to unpack that and challenge that stereotype and really tell a more holistic story of what that relationship has been and all the different kinds of relationships that have existed between women and the Beatles since the very beginning of the band, you know, going back all the way to Liverpool and the Beatles starting out their career, essentially. So, yeah, as you can see, it's it's been a lengthy process, <laughs> but but I'm happy that it it finally happened, that I got it together and did the research and wrote the book, and now it's out there. Well, you, you should be happy because it's a, it's a fascinating read. Uh, if we look a little bit at the, the content of it, uh, I mean, for me, one of the really eye-opening parts of the book was the chapter on the relationship between the Beatles and their female fans in Liverpool at the Cavern and, and, and elsewhere. Just tell us a little bit about what you found out about those relationships that the Beatles formed with women there. Was there any role for male fans at, at, at that point in the Beatles' career or was it, was it almost entirely female-based? No, I mean, certainly there were male fans there. But I think if you look at a lot of the local histories that have been written about the Mersey Beat scene and the audiences at the Cavern, I guess what struck me that was always surprising is the preponderance of male stories and male voices that populate those kinds of histories. And so I wanted to really bring the focus onto those early female fans, those young women who were very exuberant supporters of the Beatles early on and would travel all over Merseyside to see them. So there's a lot of focus on the cavern, of course, and for good reason. 
but young women were traveling to the world peninsula you know seeing shows there mm. uh, they were going out to the outer edges of the region to see the beatles play so they were very dedicated and what i thought was so important about the story what i thought i really wanted to tell was something that reflected the friendly nature of the relationship between the beatles and these female fans because i think more often than not the stories that have been told about female fans of any rock band but certainly the beatles it's it's always predicated on you know having a favorite beetle in the sense of having a crush on someone in the band and certainly that was part of it but i also wanted to add the sort of camaraderie and the friendship that developed in this music scene in merseyside so the mersey beat scene i wanted to show how the beetles really wanted to get to know the female fans and you know sometimes they'd see them around town sometimes they'd even give them a ride somewhere um they would tell them about as soon as they started recording they would tell them about that love me do had just been recorded and mm. they were about to record an album and they really wanted to get to know the girls that were there in some way and so it was this kind of tight knit community and the story really is about these boy girl friendships that developed and i know later on uh when the beatles are compared for instance to the rolling stones the beatles are sort of seen as the boys next door uh and during this time in liverpool they literally in a way were the boys next door <laughs> but they were they were the cool and talented boys next door that you wanted to get to know mm. so i i wanted to show that um it wasn't just that you know girls wanted to date the beatles and you know that is the main story i think there is this other story about friendship and community where young women were fully included noticed and appreciated and it comes through also in the beatles performances in the sense that they were wanting to have the girls request songs i mean the guys were doing it too but they made sure that uh the girls in the audience really had a say in what songs were being performed So yeah it was very it was a very inclusive community where girls were equal participants in what was going on in terms of the fan community that was starting to build around the Beatles. So from that local community within about in a slightly surreal way I suppose for for the Beatles themselves from that local community within you know 3 two or three years suddenly there's a global community of fans um that love them and appreciate them and understand them i suppose as part of the book you spoke to numerous first generation female fans i'm curious i'm always fascinated in first generation fans uh, especially female fans i'm fascinated by that you know that that sunday night in february when that that community was almost created instantly which is a remarkable thing when you think about it um i was curious to find out what if you found if you found any kind of common themes 
in what stood out to these women about the Beatles, either from Ed Sullivan or from other times that they uh, fell in love with them, I suppose. Was there anything that they felt as a community about the Beatles as one kind of entity? I mean, I think the exciting thing for the girls and young women who suddenly kind of fell in love with the Beatles was the whole Beatles phenomenon allowed them to be part of something that was really exciting and that they were, in some ways, they were in the epicenter of it. I mean, all the press coverage that you see of American Beatlemania, especially, those images are of the screaming girls, the girls just going nuts for the Beatles. But, you know, that's just on the surface. I mean, really, if you dig deeper in terms of why the Beatles became so important to these girls and young women is that Beatles fandom wasn't just a hobby. It was a way for young women to think about their place in the world to think about their identity. I mean, I can't think of too many other cultural phenomena where girls are at the center of what's happening. And Beatlemania, it was the first time there really was this youth culture, this kind of youth subculture where girls were leading it. They were in large and in charge in terms of what was happening. Mm. Um, They also... You know, seeing the Beatles having so much fun, doing something ostensibly with their friends, making a career of it, and finding such amazing success, it really inspired girls in ways that I think no one really had thought about, that girls could think about their place in the world differently and who they might become in the future because the Beatles did become these role models for girls. You know, we hear about boys becoming Beatles fans and suddenly they're really proactive doing all these things like forming bands and suddenly they're getting their hair cut like the Beatles and that sort of thing. But girls were, um, they were really dreaming big dreams about the kind of agency they may have in the world when they're older, the way Mm. that they see the Beatles uh, doing something creative, uh, doing something against the odds, right? The more that these girls read in teen magazines about the Beatles story and where they came from and this really unlikely story of success, it gives them something to dream about. And we have to remember that in the 1960s, girls didn't necessarily, they were just, I think, starting to think about all the different possibilities for their future beyond being a wife and mother. You know, maybe there could be something a little bit different that they could be doing. Yeah, I think they mapped on to the Beatles a lot of these dreams of freedom and independence and possibility. And that did come through in the interviews that I conducted, as well as the other primary sources I was looking at from that period from, say, 1964 to 1966. Mm. There is this sense that the Beatles represent so many exciting things that inspire these young women in terms of future aspirations and doing things that 
aren't expected of them, I guess, at that mm. point. Did you find that the way that women connected with the Beatles changed for second, third, fourth generation fans? So women that got into the Beatles in the 70s or, or the 90s, was there a similar kind of connection that, that they formed with the Beatles that first generation fans have formed? I think in the 70s, when the Beatles are no longer a band, they've broken up, something really interesting happens. The Beatles become a way for girls to embrace rock music because something that some sociologists and popular music scholars talk about is that uh, after the Beatles, more so in the 70s, there's this masculinization of rock music. Rock becomes something that is mainly for boys and men. Mm -hmm. And women are listening to pop idols, you know, David Casty, Donny Osmond, that sort of thing. And the Beatles become this way for girls to really get into rock music. And they feel just as the earlier generations did going all the way back to the cavern these girls really feel invited into the rock music space through the Beatles and I think that reflects the lyrical content of the Beatles songs where uh, the Beatles are not afraid to to show women in all these different kinds of ways they're not um, stereotyped in the lyrics there are career women, there are women who are independent and going to leave their boyfriend. <laughs> there are, uh, you know, they're not just seen as love objects, basically. So um, there's a lot of space for women to relate to the Beatles songs in a way that would be harder maybe with some of the other rock bands of that time period. So I thought that was a really interesting story that I wanted to tell. In the 80s and 90s, where you really see the second generation fans, it becomes a story of intergenerational fandom, where girls are sharing in their discovery of the Beatles with perhaps an auntie or their mother. Mm. And it's a way for them to cross any supposed you know boundaries that exist between contemporary music and older music and i thought that was really fascinating also this idea that the beatles are role models i think when you see more female bands becoming really successful in the 80s and 90s and also women solo performers who are having a lot of commercial success or underground indie rock success. Mm. There, there are more, you know, female role models for girls and young women to latch onto. And yet there's still an attraction to what the Beatles can offer in terms of music, in terms of uh, personal development or identity development. Oh, I should mention too, that something that's really interesting that happens in the 70s, mm. where you kind of have that in-between generation, is that that's where you also see women who were fans of the Beatles as children, say if they were born in uh, the early 1950s, some of them end up becoming, you know, quite popular musicians, either punk musicians like Viv Albertine from The Slits, or... Mm the women who formed the Bengals and the Go-Go's, you know, they were 
Beatles fans when they were little girls, and then they end up forming bands of their own. So I thought that was important to mention as well. Mm. Um, yeah, so there is some continuity there in terms of the Beatles really inspiring girls and young women to play music, to try out different things, to be creative in all these different ways. I think that's probably the thread through all those generations. If we could move on to looking at the personalities, I suppose, that, that make up the, the Beatles story, that, that's always the, the thread that I, I find particularly fascinating myself. Um, if we talk about Beatle wives, for want of a, a, be, a better term, um, something that I thought was really interesting about your book is your description of those initial kind of partners that the Beatles had during the early years of the success Maureen and Sin, which you described as Merseyside Maidens, uh, and Patty and Jane as the Darling Damsels, uh, which I thought was a really interesting way of, of looking at, at those individuals. Tell us a little bit about what that meant for you. What, what was the differences maybe between Maureen and Sin and Patty and Jane? Okay. Well, I think an important thing to mention is that this women's history of the Beatles is really done also to look at the changing experiences of women through the decade, right? So the Beatles are at the heart of the 1960s and there are also these massive transformations that are underway for women in terms of either staying with more traditional roles or sort of branching out and trying out new things, which obviously connects with what I was just talking about a moment ago. Mm. But when we look at figures in the Beatles story, such as uh, Cynthia Powell and uh, Maureen Cox, we see women who marry quite young. They have children right away. They're also you know, as I say in the chapter, which is, I should point out for people who haven't read the book and are listening, uh, I tell that story, that whole chapter through the lens of uh, the Beatles story as a fairy tale, right? So that's, that's part of why I'm using that terminology, like Merseyside Maidens and Darling Damsels. Because fairy tales in Western culture, obviously, are such a socializing tool or a real force for socialization and how we understand, you know, women's roles traditionally and men's roles. So I was interested in uh, looking at the story in this way. Also, the Beatles are very much positioned as these kinds of Prince Charmings, these heroic figures, obviously. They're the heroes of the story, as mm-hmm. they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with, with Sin and with Maureen, they're from Liverpool. Well, Sin is from uh, the Worlds, so she's from <laughs> the other side of the Mersey, but essentially they grew up in Merseyside. Mm-hmm. They do reflect more of that traditional image of womanhood in the 1960s at least when they get married. I mean, the interesting, I think a very interesting interesting thing about Maureen's story is, of course, she is one of those girls at the cavern. She is 
a tried and true Beatles fan mm. who is going to see them all the time at the cavern, gets to know Ringo, and it is this kind of fairy tale romance between fan and band member. So, um, yes, but their stories tend to be people at the time are very comfortable with. So when Cynthia and Maureen both are given press attention, especially in the teen press geared towards adolescent and teenage girls, you know, I mean, I think the girls who are reading these articles are a little bit unsure why the Beatles' wives are being featured or why the girlfriends are being featured in the magazines. But it's clear that they were they were being positioned in that media to be role models for the fans, for the female fans. There wasn't this notion really that was out there that girls would be aspiring to be in a band. And of course, my book shows the readers that there were. There were many girls who were aspiring to do that. Yeah. But, you know, Cynthia and Maureen represent that more traditional um, kind of woman at that time. Now, with Jane and Patty, it's really interesting because they're both in London. They're both in the middle of these glamorous careers. Jane comes from a family that's very established, where her mother is a professor of music. Her father is a well-respected, well-known doctor. Patty's family was in Kenya, moved to the UK. And they're both seen as kind of in between tradition and modernity. You know, they're, they're seen as these modern girls with careers. They're glamorous. They're exciting. And I think they also become the ideal of who the Beatles should be partnered with in the sense that they are glamorous. They are a model and an actress. And again, for young girls, they're being presented as the ideal modern kind of girl. So they do represent something new and exciting to the public uh, that both, I think, the male and female fans really embrace them. Mm. And Paul McCartney and Jane Asher especially, but I think George Harrison and Patty Boyd too, they're seen as these golden couples at the time. So they really are... Yeah, they're really positioned as the kinds of women that the Beatles should be partnered with. Okay. I think it's interesting. I was next part of my question was whether you felt that the the perception, the view of, of those four women had changed up to the current day from from the sixties. Um I mean Jane's a fascinating character, isn't she? Uh, obviously mm-hmm. she's I mean she's she's famously never spoken about her relationship with Paul I I don't know whether or not you feel that how that's affected her kind of place in the fandom do you think she's seen now as do you think people are not angry but do you think that there's any kind of regret around that do you think the image of Jane and Paul would be stronger today if she'd given even just a handful of interviews in the last 50 or so years Yeah, I don't know about that. In fact, there was a woman I interviewed for the book who said that she really respected the fact Mm. that Jane hasn't talked about it, that she actually liked Jane Asher more 
today than when she was a teenage girl and was seeing Jane Asher in all these teen magazines. She, she thought that that was probably a good decision, you know, very respectful and yeah, not wanting to bring up that chapter in her life. So when you think about all the, the people who have spoken about their experiences with the Beatles and written memoirs and so on. Mm. And I'm, I'm grateful to them. I, I really have loved reading all of those memoirs by, you know, ex-wives and people who knew the Beatles and so on. Mm. But I, I don't know. I think actually a lot of people still really, really like Jane Asher, even though, she hasn't talked about her relationship with Paul McCartney. I don't think, at least I haven't heard that, and that hasn't come up, or it didn't come up in my interviews at all. Okay. I think she's, she's still very uh, well-loved, I think, in the Beatles story. And rightfully so, and rightfully so. Mm, in, rightfully in, in, so. In my view. Uh, so moving on from, from Jane, then we, we come to another... Who, someone who's definitely now a, a very beloved figure, which is Linda Eastman, uh, that, that became obviously became Linda McCartney. Talking about journeys that women, the Beatles story, undertake, I think Linda's is one of the most interesting. Um, I, I mean, I, I got a, a sort of a sense from the book that initially she wasn't always seen in the very respectful and loved way that she is now. Um, I mean, part of that, I assume, would have been just because she was with Paul McCartney and there must have been an element of the, of the fandom that just didn't appreciate that. Um, tell us a little bit about, about Linda. I think the issue comes up when Linda enters the Beatles story that she isn't Jane Asher. I think that's the first thing that people don't like is that Paul McCartney has suddenly left Jane and is now with this American divorcee and they just don't understand. They don't understand what's happened. It's, as I said before, I think with Jane Asher and Patty Boyd, they're seen as these ideals. They epitomize the glamour of that time period. And uh, Linda and Yoko, who I'll be talking about shortly, Hmm. uh, they don't fit the stereotype that the public has in terms of who should be with the Beatle. As I said before, the Beatle story is told, uh, or it it has these dimensions of a fairy tale story. So there are the heroes and the heroines, the princes and princesses, uh, the villains, the witches, you know, and there's a real kind of script that's developed, I think, in the media. And so there are all these expectations of who the Beatles should partner with. And of course, nobody has a right to determine who partners with whom. Hmm. And there's this very um, shallow reading, I think, of women like Linda that, you know, why isn't she wearing makeup? Just weird things like that. Nobody seems to be interested that she's had this budding career in photography, Mm. that she's this incredibly interesting person, that she's someone who Paul McCartney obviously feels really comfortable with. And 
I picked out this quote that I wanted to share with you because I think it says so much about, about what I'm talking about. And that is okay. uh, from Linda McCartney's book, Linda McCartney's 60s Portrait of an Era. And she says, Paul liked me because I was very much a free spirit and followed my own instincts. And yes, I mean, Paul McCartney, I think, says in many years from now that he just felt so comfortable with Linda. He really felt at home with her. And there's this also creative partnership that develops that's really uh, important to both of them. And yet, I mean, I think this is where things get very mean-spirited is that a lot of people just don't like that he is including Linda in his new band, Wings, yeah. right? Yeah. Some of the women I interviewed, and there was one in particular who remembers going to see Wings in Perth in 1976, and that when Linda was introduced, Paul would introduce everyone in the band, that people were actually booing his wow. wife. You know, how could people do that? Yeah. It just, it was, and you're right. I mean, I think second and third generation fans now who tend to really, to really advocate for Linda and her memory and just have nothing but good things to say about her. I, I think it's, it must be so shocking to them. I mean, I can remember really rude jokes and nasty things that were said about her when I was quite young, you know, in the late seventies or early eighties. So I think the attitudes towards her really softened and changed and changed for the positive, obviously, after Wings broke up and Linda wasn't as much in the foreground, perhaps, in her husband's music making. Yeah. So, I mean, certainly you still see her in the music videos from the early 80s. She's still involved, obviously, but... You start hearing, I think she's doing more interviews at this point in the 80s and early 90s. Her vegetarian cooking uh, and her cookbooks are taking off in the, the line of, of food. Hmm. The Linda McCartney food is coming out. She's also known for advocating for animal rights and things like that. So I think people are getting a fuller sense of her as a person Mm. Uh, and moving beyond sort of this bad press that surrounded her. And yeah, it was really awful. I mean, I think there was so much meanness directed at her that was completely unfounded. I mean, by all accounts of everything that I read, she was a very nice person. And some of the the women I interviewed her from the first generation who really said they liked her and they liked everything about her. Uh, a couple of them pointed to the fact that they really, what came across in the press was what a good mother she was and how well she raised her children. And that that was something that they really liked about her, that you would hear all these wholesome, really good and positive positive things about her so yeah um yeah it's you know definitely the attitudes changed but initially when she came into the story she was not treated well and especially i would say more so during the wings era even more so than the breakup period i mean i think the breakup period yoko really becomes that that object of anger 
and sort of blame. Yeah. So Linda doesn't. Linda is treated nicely in that respect, uh, or she's not, you know, she's not the object of all this vitriol. But yeah, as soon as wings take off, I think that's where it gets quite ugly, really. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. It's a fascinating point, actually, that the, the view of her softened when she uh, didn't dare to be on stage with, with Paul. Um, uh, not, not a question as such, but sort of a, a, just a, a comment, really. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen, uh, or if any of the listeners um, have, have seen, there's a video on YouTube, and it's a video which I think really beautifully, maybe unwittingly, sums up Paul and Linda. There's a video of Mike McCartney's wedding uh, from 1982. Uh, he, he married in 68 when mm-hmm. Paul was with Jane. And then he, he married to a, a woman called Rowena, who he's still married to now. Um, and, and somehow the, the wedding video of this, this wedding made its way into the public domain. And in the main, it's this, this kind of, you know, summer English afternoon. As I said, it's in 1982. Um, and it's just a normal kind of family wedding. It's just the fact that the best man happens to be Paul McCartney. Um, and, uh-huh. you, and you see the speeches and, and all these, you know, all these, what Paul calls the rallies or the Liverpool, the, you know, a huge Liverpool extended family that Paul and Mike certainly had in the early 80s. And obviously Linda's there by Paul's side. And obviously they, they're not aware that they're being filmed properly it's not mm-hmm. like it's not like they're at like a you know like a, a showbiz event or anything and the camera just catches them having a conversation or, and just being so relaxed and affectionate and just you know by that point early 80s they'd been married for you know 12 13 years whatever they'd had you know four children they look like they're on their like first date still anyone goes onto onto youtube mike mccartney wedding video it's about three quarters of an hour long and it's not all that thrilling but the moments um and it's nice to see paul and mike actually in in you know it, there's another relationship that we could talk about on another podcast linda's so just relaxed and accepted by the whole family it seems i think that speaks volumes about her uh, as as a woman um that she's you know at that point she's you know you know what it's like when you go to a wedding that's like your partner's wedding and there's 60 people there, you're not going to know it. You're not going to know everyone. So you might feel a bit, a bit nervous, but she's so, she just seems so warm and so relaxed and so at ease with Paul. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a marvelous clip. It's definitely worth seeking out if, you, if you've got a spare few minutes. I, I will. I haven't seen that. So I really appreciate you telling me about that. It sounds lovely. It and lovely. Yeah, but I think that's so true. And I, the way that people make judgments about other people's partners, whether uh, it's people you actually know, or, you know, obviously in the whole tabloid press and celebrity, it's, it's really crazy. Mm. But I mean, how can you, how can anyone make that sort of judgment about who someone should fall in love with? I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. I mean, we can't know what kind of relationship really Paul and Linda had or John and Yoko. Um, And yet people are willing to make all these, all these snap judgments based on what? So speaking of snap judgments, it's time maybe we should move on to, to speaking about, about Yoko Ono, maybe the most famous part of 
the the Beatle wife kind of story, if there if there is such a thing, right, rightly or wrongly, from the people that you spoke to and the, and the kind of research that you did, was she always seen as this dragon lady that that she was dubbed somewhat regrettably? Was the view of Yoko and John's union negative amongst the fandom, amongst the press, almost instantly? What do you think the factors were behind that that view of Yoko? Well, I think from the start, the press was the most harsh. I don't think all the all the fans uniformly disliked or hated Yoko. I think there were some, and I found this to be true amongst the first generation fans. There were definitely some that always thought she was cool, thought she was really interesting, that she was this kind of compelling and really interesting um, partner for John. The fans, as I think is true today, were divided in terms of fans who really appreciated and liked Yoko and those who really disliked her. And in terms of the press, I think there were several things going on in terms of how she comes into the story and how that story is told in these various uh, news outlets. Mm. And the first thing is that John got together with Yoko while he was still married to Cynthia. Mm. Cynthia had become this beloved figure and for good reason in the Beatles story. And so there was outrage there. And again, we have to remember that divorce was not as commonplace as it is today. And, you know, adultery, even among the rich and famous, was not something that was always public and out there. And so there was a lot of outrage around that in 1968. But again, all the, all the scorn and all the, the angry energy is directed at Yoko, uh, not at John as much, I would say. I mean, it's bad optics for John, but Yoko becomes the main target of scorn mm. in, in that situation. But I think the most important thing here to talk about is Yoko's otherness. And I don't just mean racist sentiments that were directed at her for being Japanese, but that she was unconventional, that she was this really out there artist doing things that most of the general public was not hip to and couldn't really or didn't understand. And I think, you know, unconventional women are still oftentimes given a difficult time. Mm. But back then, as I said before, when women were pretty much expected to put marriage and motherhood first, she didn't fit into, you know, any sort of image the public had in terms of a traditional kind of woman. And she certainly didn't fit into uh, who people expected a beetle should pair with, right? She wasn't this type of woman that a lot of people could understand. So similarly to Linda, I think she didn't fit this expectation that the public had in terms of who a Beatle wife should be. And of course, then she's finally sort of, worst of all, she's positioned as in, in many respects, the ultimate villain, other than maybe Klein, 
as the person who breaks up the band, that she somehow single-handedly pulls Lennon away from the band, from his friends. And even today, there are so many pop culture references that use Yoko's name in a pejorative way. I mean, I was re-watching Friends uh, recently, and there's an episode in Friends where Phoebe is called Yoko because supposedly she's pulling away uh, her current boyfriend from this big research project that he's supposed to go to in Russia. And so his friend comes up and under his breath calls her Yoko. Uh, Flight of the Concords has a whole episode called Yoko because uh, in the Flight of the Concords rock duo, one of the members gets together with this girl and he's spending all his time with her. And so she's called Yoko all of a sudden. Mm. So it's pretty incredible that so many years later, that sort of thing still crops up, that uh, Yoko's name has become shorthand for this kind of disruptive woman who invades, you know, male space and causes all these problems. And, you know, I think what I find in some ways the most startling about the meanness, it's all bad, but the meanness that was directed at Yoko, I think, is strange in the sense that if we see John as this kind of out there, innovative artist, this visionary person, why is there the expectation that a man like that is is supposed to partner with someone who's really traditional? I find that strange. Mm -hmm. You know, wouldn't you expect that someone who thinks of himself as an artist who wants to live this kind of exciting, adventurous, different kind of life, who's really creative, wouldn't he then want to be married to a woman who is also like that? That is something that I've thought about a lot that I think is so strange that, you know, is it that men are allowed to be artistic and out there and quote unquote weird, but a woman certainly can't do that? That's not allowed. (laughs) <laughs> I think, unfortunately, it might exactly be that. Just, just staying on Yoko, I, I'm curious to find out what you, you know, she's obviously now mainly, I suppose, due to her, her advancing years, she's not seen in public as much now as she was uh, up until the last kind of 10 years or so. What do you think the view is on her now? Do you think you quoted those two TV shows and there are, I'm sure many others that you mm. could that you, that you could have quoted. Um, I mean, she's been a widow for 41 years. Um, uh, you know that you think that there would have been an outpouring of of sympathy a- around that time. Which I, I mean, I was born in '84, so I I can't speak to that really. Do you think that the view of her is is any better now than it was through the '60s and '70s? Yeah. And as I was saying before, there were some people who always thought Yoko was super interesting and was this visionary artist and who prompted uh, John Lennon to explore so many more really fascinating things in his life, musically and artistically. Um, And then, you know, you would have to have a heart made of pure stone not to 
soften to Yoko in some way after she had just seen her husband killed. Yeah. So uh, there definitely was, I think, a softening towards Yoko because of what she had gone through uh, with her, her husband being murdered right in front of her. But that being said, you know, the, as the references that I gave you just now in terms of you using Yoko's name as this pejorative, I mean, that was happening well after yeah. John Lennon's murder. So I would say, you know, there are, there are people who have always advocated for her and seen her as this amazing person who should be celebrated. And in fact, now with the Plastic Ono Band box set coming out, the reissue, mm. there have been, I've come across several really excellent articles that do talk about just that, you know, that Yoko has been this visionary artist and she really inspired John to try out new things musically and their collaborations were really interesting and that she should be positioned uh, in that way in cultural history and music history and so on and so forth. Mm. And yeah, but, you know, we wouldn't have the the wonderful music from the B-52s, for instance, if it hadn't been for Yoko, you can you can see her influence in uh, a lot of performers from, say, the punk era, mm. women performers and New Wave as well. Mm. And yeah, I mean, I've talked with women who say that, you know, they like the Beatles fine, but that for them... Yoko Ono becomes the more compelling figure in the whole Beatles story. So that wasn't so much the people or the women who I interviewed for the book, but just anecdotally, that's come up. I mean, in the book, I do talk about and cite uh, Viv Albertine from The Slits talking about in her memoir, she, you know, says how much she thought of Yoko Ono as this wonderful figure and really the right kind of partner for John Lennon. So mm. um, I would say even among the first generation fans, like I said, there were those who always were in Yoko's corner, so to speak. And rightly so. Um, so so you, you mentioned a few earlier and uh, just hoping to, to kind of come back to that was some of the inspiration that the Beatles gave to women to form their own bands. Um, you mentioned right at the start of our conversation there, the Liver Birds, uh, which I think is, is a great story on its own. You know, they could certainly yes. have, ha- could certainly have their own book. Um, it, it just tell us, just share with us a little bit about that story. I, I dare say the majority of listeners to this podcast could name 10 other even male Mersey Beat bands, um, but the Liver Birds, uh, maybe not as as easily. Why do you think that they've been, you know, Liver Birds and others have been kind of slightly written out of, of history? Okay, well, to answer that, I think I need to go back to why the book is even called A Women's History of the Beatles, because I'm alluding to the movement of women's history that, started in the early 70s when women historians were basically saying they were kind of fed up with the fact that history with a capital H 
had been written mostly by men, celebrating men's stories, and they weren't really featuring or they were only rarely mentioning women's contributions or accomplishments. Obviously, there are exceptions to that, you know, Mm. key figures in history, Queen Elizabeth I, you know, Cleopatra, obviously, there are women in history that had been written about and studied. Um, But if we're looking at cultural history or social history, uh, there are a lot of instances where women are just not included very much with what's going on. And so women's history was this movement to say, okay, look, A, we're not really seeing a lot of our stories being told. And B, even when we're included in some of these histories, we don't necessarily like how we're being represented. Mm. So there was this need for women to step in and try to either find these sort of lost histories or to reclaim histories that they felt weren't told in sort of a a good sort of way that really reflected their experiences. So the same really holds true for the whole history of women in rock. It's only been since the early 90s, actually, that female rock writers and academics have brought a lot of this history to light. So notably, you have books like um, Julian G. Gar's She's a Rebel, which was published in 1992, and Lucy O'Brien's She-Bop, which comes out in 1995, uh, where you you see more of this fleshed-out kind of whole history of what women were doing. But to be honest, it's unless you find the women who were in these bands and interview them, there isn't a lot out there in terms of saying old newspaper articles or magazine articles. What was happening is that really these all female bands who formed because they were inspired by the Beatles, they were facing what we would call gatekeeping, right? In the music industry Mm. that, the music industry executives didn't take them seriously. They saw them as novelty acts and they didn't really think that they could sell them, if you will, to the public. You know, they knew what to do with women singers, with vocalists, because there's obviously a whole tradition there that goes well before rock and roll even happened, right? So there's that whole history of female entertainers in showbiz, and and the like but they didn't really know what to do with these all-girl bands and one of the musicians I interviewed Patty Quattro Erickson she told me that it was what she called the suits these executive types who were really the roadblock in terms of signing these bands, promoting them, they just, they just assumed that these girls would soon get married and quit the industry, quit the band, quit the whole, you know, business. So because of that, there aren't even a lot of um, recordings, you know, there are some and there would be these labels and say the late 80s starting in the late 80s and into the 90s these independent labels who would reissue 
or they would put out CDs that were compilations of these singles that were circulating. So some of these bands may have had a few singles that were recorded. They never got national airplay. Mm. A lot of them just got maybe regional radio airplay. And so they weren't really promoted. You can't find a lot of articles about them in newspapers or say teen magazines. I mean, I think when I was really looking in depth, there was maybe one lengthier article in one of the teen magazines about Goldie and the Gingerbreads who actually, they formed prior to the Beatles. Um, But there weren't articles about Patty Quattro Erickson's band, The Pleasure Seekers, and the, the other thing, I think, in terms of why we haven't heard of a band like the Liverbirds is because these women, they were from Liverpool, they formed the band there. But when they got to Germany and had much more success in Germany, and actually there, they were written about in teen magazines, girls formed bands in Germany because of the Liverbirds and having these new role models there. But because that was outside of that sort of Anglo-American core in terms of rock music uh, publicity, you know, you wouldn't hear about those stories because it was contained within Germany, if you like, in terms of the Liverbirds. Same with the Nursery Rhymes, another uh, one of the bands that I feature in the book. Uh, Marie Salinger, who I interviewed, she met her, one of her, well, the co-founder of her band, she met at the Stockholm airport as they were awaiting the Beatles. The Beatles were starting their Swedish tour in October 1963. And she said there were maybe, you know, 12 to 20 people at the airport and they were just girls. There were no boys there, according to uh, Marie, other than uh, I think some of the, the people who were in charge of Uh, who were music industry people who were in charge of ushering the Beatles, say, to their hotel and that sort of thing. Mm. But otherwise, it was just a a whole group of teenage girls who were there. And so she actually met the Beatles. That was very exciting. But the more interesting part of that story is that she goes on to meet her future bandmate and co-founder of the Nursery Rhymes, And they had some good press, I think, in Sweden. In fact, one of the stories that I share in the book that she shared with me is that when The Who came uh, to Stockholm, when they came to Sweden again to do a tour, just like the Beatles had done, they said that the most surprising thing about the music scene in Stockholm was discovering the nursery rhymes. So they were really impressed and really liked the nursery rhymes. And in fact, the nursery rhymes did tour with like the Kinks and they never played with the Beatles, but uh, they did, you know, have a certain modicum of success there. But again, because they were outside of the Anglosphere, uh, they they didn't have the opportunity, I think, to get written into those English language rock histories. So that's part of what's going on there as well. Basically, rock history um, from the 70s on and the way it's formulated by especially uh, rock music journalists, it does become this story of male guitar groups 
and some female singers, essentially. And there seems to be no place to incorporate or make sense of these all-female rock bands. So that's why it was very important to include them in this history, because later on we do see much more successful all-female bands by the 1980s. But in the 1960s, there just didn't seem to be a place for them. And there isn't a really sort of obvious paper trail to follow. Mm -hmm. So it, it does become difficult to find out about them until really the 90s, where there are some of these garage rock reissues that are coming out or that are being compiled. And that's one way that people start hearing about these bands. But it was tough going for a long time. There's, a, there's definitely more information now, but that's come from people tracking down the women who were in these bands and interviewing them. So that's what I did as well. <laughs> and we're grateful that you did. I, I was curious to find out if there was a particular figure or theme that that kind of really stood out to you from the process of writing the book uh, that maybe you weren't aware of before you started to undertake the project or that you were surprised about was there something was there like an overarching feeling or individual or, or theme as I say that that really stood out for you while you were writing the book I wouldn't say there was any one figure I think in my mind, there was always this composite or this amalgamation of images uh, in terms of the different women involved in the Beatles story, whether we're talking about somebody like Astrid Kircher, who I would say was the Beatles' first true documentarian, who allows us to see the band for the first time through the female gaze, and the wives and girlfriends who had such varied experiences uh, within the Beatles story, also the multiple generations of fans who uh, have related to the band in the context of their generation. So mm. that was really the picture in my head that I wanted to create a platform and create this book that gave more voice to all the women who have supported and loved the Beatles uh, as a band, as individuals, as songwriters, and just as a truly unique and uplifting phenomenon of the 20th century, and one that continues to have so much resonance in the contemporary moment. I can't think of a time when people will stop talking about the Beatles. There's just... It's such a rich story. It's such a dynamic story. There's so many different avenues to explore. And I mean, to be honest, I was a little bit surprised in a sense that this kind of book hadn't been written yet mm. about the Beatles because it is a story with so many strong female protagonists from start to finish. It really is a dynamic story between men and women. Certainly the, the Beatles are at the core of this and there are four very interesting, charismatic, talented young men at the start of the story. But 
It's just this fantastic saga that, yeah, I think there's so many directions that you can take it in terms of trying to explore what was going on. And for me, it was just really important to get women's voices out there in terms of what the Beatles have represented in their lives and where the Beatles have taken them. They've taken them obviously on all these fantastic journeys. Absolutely. Uh, and I think your book captures that, that really well. Um, and, and hopefully it will inspire and, and lead to other works um, a, around this, this kind of theme. I, I would recommend it to everyone listening. Um, well, uh, Christine, thanks so much for your time. It, it's been a really uh, enlightening hour or so talking to you. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much, Joe. Just before I go, you may know that I don't have a Facebook page for the podcast, but one of my favourite Beatles book pages is The Beatles in Print, Together and Solo, run by the great John Bazzini. Lots of Beatle authors and members, lots of mature Beatle discussion, and I post a lot on there as well. Well worth a look. <laughs>